Hi guys, and welcome back to JFS In Conversation. Today we are joined by Jaya. Jaya, how are you? I'm so well, thank you. How are you? I'm great, thank you. And today we're going to be talking about the meat production industry. Before we start, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? Sure, of course. My name is Jaya Bumitra. I am a social justice activist. I have a special focus on animal uh, activism. I've also been active in gender issues, uh, racial justice, and worker justice. I've been in the nonprofit sector for about the last 10 years and recently launched my own uh, consultancy where I talk a lot about these issues and work on empowering people to fulfill their potential as activists in whatever ways that they work. Okay, for sure. You can just get started. The first right. question we did have in mind was if you could talk a little bit about the history behind the meat production industry. Yes. Yeah. So people have been eating animals for as long as time. Um, but as you're probably aware, it moved from a hunter-gatherer method to more industrial farming as time went on. And this is largely due to uh, population growth and demand. And because of the sheer quickness with which population has grown, the industry has wanted to intensify meat production. But unfortunately, that intensification has come with a lot of challenges, particularly when it comes to animal welfare, also climate change. And then there's also some health impacts that are the result of that too, both individual health impacts as well as public health impacts. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think something, of course, we can all agree on is uh, historical differences in capitalistic ideals, because of course, mm-hmm. the production industry is a huge part of capitalism, um, right. definitely boomed when when capitalism boomed, etc. Uh, exactly so for example, right. like indigenous peoples, like all across Asia and Africa, um, generally speaking, I think historically, uh, for the most part, they had ethical meat production and consumption consistently. It was really only until Western ideals from what I understand, which included, uh, of course, those that affect meat production and consumption um, that were spread alongside colonization, of course. Um, And this isn't something that's often talked about in conversations regarding the meat production industry. But I guess with this added back into the conversation, how do you think it affects it? Or should more people be aware of this kind of thing? Yes, this is such an excellent point, and I'm so glad you raised this right at the top of the hour together. Uh, Absolutely, colonization and capitalism have had a massive effect on um, the way the industry has, um, I I don't want to say move forward, but the way the industry has um, built itself. I wouldn't say move forward because it's actually been a regression in terms of uh, societal um, benefit. Um, One thing that I do think is really important for people to realize is that the capitalist system that's so entrenched in our society it's covering so many different areas. So obviously there's racial issues tied to capitalism, there's gender issues tied to capitalism, um, there's worker issues tied to capitalism. Unfortunately, because of the way the system is established to hold power amongst a few to exploit um, lower classes and working classes, this is a system that really is working on all cylinders to keep people who are oppressed, oppressed. And what Mm -hmm. that means is that that's happening in the animal sector as well. So one thing that has been a revelation for me over the course of my work in this space, because I've been working in the farmed animal protection sector specifically for the last 10 years, was this understanding of capitalism, which I did not have at the beginning of my journey. But over time, I started to realize that this commodification of animals was something that was so incredibly damaging to their well-being, but also to the people who are involved in the industry themselves. And so mm-hmm. oftentimes, one of the challenges is that people will see the people who are working in the facilities as, you know, the quote unquote bad guy, but they are actually victims of oppression, just like 
the animals are because mm-hmm. they are working in really egregious conditions for low pay. Um, many of them are undocumented. There's no whistleblower protections. Um, there's a lot of risks in those cases. But mm-hmm. meanwhile, it's the you know people at the top who are in management or who are running the businesses who are uh, making as much money as possible out of exploiting these workers and out of exploiting these animals. Mm-hmm. And so you'll end up seeing a lot of crossover and these intersections of oppression really meet in the animal industry and in the meat industry. And it's much more visible when you look in this industry than maybe it is in some others where it's covered up a little bit more. What you are told in advertising is absolutely not true. Um, you'll see pictures of happy animals on packaging, uh, you know, cows looking like they're standing in grass or chickens smiling on an egg carton. Uh, or on a package of chicken meat. And in fact, what is happening behind the closed doors of factory farms is nothing short of animal abuse. It's things that, you know, would give people nightmares and unfortunately actually do give the workers nightmares. And we see instances of um, alcoholism, domestic violence rising in communities where there are these facilities because it's such a traumatic field to be working in when you're actually doing the day-to-day. It's also really physically laborious and intensive for the workers. And when they have to go home at night, they have to carry those burdens with them. It's a very, very taxing job. And so it's really important to remember that um, many, many different populations are suffering as a part of this industry. It's animals, but it's also the people too. Mm-hmm, for sure. Thank you for, for such a wonderful answer. Yeah, I think one other thing to remember about you're exactly right in all of those points, but I think one other thing to remember is that pricing strategy is a marketing strategy. Mm -hmm. I actually have a marketing background and um, when you're looking at how companies establish pricing, it is also exploitative. It feeds right into the capitalist structure and framework that we were talking about at the start of the call. Um, So a lot of pricing is a little bit artificial. So I'll give you one example. Mm -hmm. Actually, right around the time when I went vegan, there was a proposition on the ballot in California. This is many years ago in 2008 called uh, Proposition 2. And uh, what this intended to do was ban the cruelest forms of confinement for animals uh, raised for meat in California. Um, And so this involved... um, pigs used for meat, chickens who laid eggs and calves who were raised for veal. Now, of course, there's many other animals who are raised and killed for food, but these were the three primary uh, species that were being covered. So what happened is that um, there was a lot of concern that giving more space to chickens used for eggs was going to result in higher costs for the consumer because the idea was, okay, well, if the housing changes for these chickens and they're not bred in intensive confinement, we have to give them more space, then who's paying for the cost of those infrastructure upgrades? The companies must pass that on to the consumer. Mm-hmm. So meanwhile, what happened is the, the price per egg only went up one penny per egg. It was very, very um, nominal. And I think some studies later showed that the, um, the pricing was really uh, very insignificant in terms of the changes, because um, I am aware, of course, that eggs are a very um, low cost protein that a lot of people um, like to use for that reason. And I know that in some communities, um, eggs being eaten is is, um, the more affordable option. But that said, 
the consumers themselves were a bit hoodwinked in this situation because what the grocery stores did is they just jacked up their prices because they they knew that the expectation from consumers was that the cage-free eggs were going to be more expensive, but they raised the prices even higher than what was required or even higher than what was um, necessary based on these infrastructural changes. And they just passed that on to the consumer so that the grocery stores themselves could make more income in that case. There's also been in the court cases, actually legal instances of the uh, chicken meat industry price fixing, as well as the egg industry price fixing. So pricing is a whole other conversation, but I think that the uh -huh. way pri pricing of um, uh, meat products and animal products is done is, is just a part of the problem. It's something that I think consumers don't always realize because they assume that they're going to be getting something that is um, you, you know, according to the logistics of producing the animal product, they think that they're getting a price that is in accordance with that. But what they're really getting is um, an exploitative price. Another another angle to this too, um, which is, so then like was, I've mentioned with the price fixing too, they're also, basically what was happening with the price fixing is that companies that would have been in competition were essentially in collusion, these meat companies and egg companies, et cetera, were in collusion trying to set prices so that they were able to influence the overall pricing in the marketplace. So they, mm -hmm. they set their prices together, then everyone would have say, okay, well, there's nobody who's necessarily higher or lower. But the other thing to note is that if consumers were really paying for the actual um, value of animals without um, U.S. subsidies, so just mm -hmm. speaking in a moment for the U.S., although there are subsidies in other countries as well. There's a lot of agricultural subsidies that are being provided by the government to the meat industry, and this is due largely to the, a very effective meat industry lobby. And because of that, um, there's collusion between the government and the, and the meat industry. And so um, when that happens, there's an artificial price of animal products that's also being produced. So in one hand, their consumers are getting gouged. And on the other hand, in other instances, consumers are paying a much lower price for animal products than they should be because of these subsidies. Mm -hmm. And if the prices were the actual cost of the animals, people wouldn't, wouldn't, you know, would be something that people probably be priced out of eating mm -hmm. animals. Mm -hmm. um, but these are, are, again, artificial prices um, being established. When, so for example, there, uh, a few years ago, there were a lot of surplus um, surplus animal products being produced. There's just too much extra milk because people were not buying it. Demand is going down too much extra pork. And what would be happening is the government would buy that off of the companies and then use them for things like the school lunch program or military or any sort of government owned facility. And so again, I just want to reiterate that a lot of times people don't really understand how connected the government and this particular industry are. And if you have reservations about capitalism or reservations about the way our government operates, we'll try to remember that these two are, are really in bed together. Yeah, for sure. Um, thank you so much for that answer. Just the last part or bit that I wanted to wrap up in terms of ethics of meat consumption was also, um, of course, <laughs> the core part of it itself. How do meat consumption ethics affect meat production ethics um so if you know you'd be so willing to answer yeah yeah this is such a good question from a philosophical standpoint so um meat consumption ethics i think the the challenge that we have is that because of the way colonization has unfolded itself and we are still in the middle of colonization it has, it's not like something that happened in the past like colonization happens now we're in the middle of it um but because of that uh 
eating animals every day has become the norm when in the past it maybe wasn't, maybe it was more of a special occasion thing, or like you said, maybe a mm -hmm. cultural occasion. Um, and so now what we're seeing is every meal every day, it's eating an animal product is the standard or is the norm. Mm -hmm. Now, what that means then is, of course, um, the companies are going to try to produce as much as possible to meet that demand. But one thing that was a really interesting dynamic that I discovered again when I was um, working in the space and, and um, learning for myself about how all of this worked was that, again, not only is basic economics will tell you that demand is going to influence the supply, but what I will also tell you is that they will create excess supply, like I said, these meat industry companies, sometimes they will have an, a surplus of product. And what will happen is that they end up having so much that even though the demand doesn't exist, because we've actually been seeing um, demand for milk go down in many in the last several years, then what they're doing is they're creating this uh, supply still, but they are creating artificial demand. And that's when they're again, selling it off to the government so that the government can put it into their um, you know, government programs in order to keep the mm -hmm. meat industry afloat. They're basically bailing them out. Mm -hmm. Something to know, of course, and I know we talked about this earlier too, um, in terms of this is definitely accessibility. So, so if they're, yeah. they're, I guess if they're creating or producing so much to the point where they can price it for so cheap, and other things, other industries might not be doing the same, or at least to yeah. the extent that the meat production industry is doing. And of course, you know, those who don't have as much financial stability as upper middle class and, and so yep. on have, like, that's obviously going to be what they turn to, right? Oftentimes, um, people forget that, you know, for a lot of people, they kind of take what, what's accessible to them and what they can of afford. Of course. Yeah, there's a great organization that I, I want to plug on that point, which is called Food Empowerment Project. I had the privilege mm -hmm. of serving on their board for a couple of years, a few years ago, but they are a fabulous organization that works at, at the intersection of a lot of these topics. So for example, they educate about the impacts of colonization on animal production. They also cover worker justice. And to your point about food accessibility, they have a great campaign um, regarding um, making sure there's access access to healthy foods in communities of color and low-income communities, which is often something that is um, neglected or by design, um, you know, excluded. So for example, they have a campaign called uh, against the company Safeway right now, because what Safeway has done is they are using restrictive deeds. So what, what's basically happening is um, grocery stores um, that maybe have been in business, like a Safeway that has been in business in the past, once it shutters its stores, instead of allowing for that same property to be taken over by a new grocery store so that that can community can have access to fresh foods, they're actually holding onto the deed, even though they're not operational in that, that space anymore. And what um, that means is that no other grocery store can go into that space. And because of that, there's a block, like there's nowhere to go to get food except the mm -hmm. convenience store or the corner store. And that of course has a health impacts mm -hmm. as well. And so this is just a terrific organization that talks a lot about everything we've discussed so far, they address capitalism, they address colonization, they address worker justice issues, they address climate change, um, and they uh, also address, um, the, of course, the animal well-being and animal mm -hmm. welfare issues and mm -hmm. um, uh, animal rights in general. And so uh, if anyone's curious about anything that we've discussed so far, definitely check out um, their website. I would highly recommend it, Food Empowerment Project, and their website is foodispower.org.
Yeah, for sure. I guess just to move on to the next point of ethics and philosophy and such, uh, now we're on ethics of meat production. So slaughtering, treatment, etc. So the first thing that I wanted to talk about was, of course, how does a meat production industry work generally? And then also for, I guess, different categories of meat. So obviously pork is a big one. Beef Mm -hmm. is probably a big one as well. Um, And and so I guess thoughts on that, because I think a lot of people don't don't really know, like they have like a general idea. I think that's kind of it. So. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And this is absolutely where um, my, the most of my knowledge is. In fact, um, it's interesting that you raised the concept of beef because while um, animals that are used in the beef industry, the cows that are used in the beef industry are of course also abused. There is no animal that is raised and killed for food that does not go through a horrific life cycle. Um, most of my work has not been on cows because of the fact that comparatively to pigs and chickens, chickens used for eggs and meat, and they're two kinds of chickens, totally separate. Uh, they have sort of the, the um, I guess they, I don't want to say that they have the least cruel lives, but they certainly have a little bit, um, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, I'll say the experience of the others is worse. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And so what's happening in the egg industry is twofold. So you have um, hens who are being used for eggs and they are, uh, the biggest problem is again, their extreme confinement. They're in cages, stuffed into cages, six to eight in a cage that's just about this big. And they have no room to spread their wings, no room to perch, no way to engage in any natural behaviors. They're standing on wire cages for two years at a time, all of their lives. They develop really aggressive um, behavior toward each other because of the stress of the confinement. They'll lose a lot of their feathers. They'll pack at each other. Um, It can be really, really uh, uh, traumatizing for them to be in that circumstance. They'll also, because of the excessive egg laying, also talking about um, uh, the industrialization of uh, production of animals, they're they're laying far more eggs than they would have in an environment pre-colonization. Like they're laying far more eggs than you would see in somebody, you know, in a, in a small community. They're laying eggs very intensively. And because of that, sometimes their uterus will prolapse. And so that can be incredibly painful for them. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, because I said it was twofold, you have the situation with male chicks. So when male chicks are born into the egg industry, there's no purpose for them at all because they cannot lay eggs. So they won't grow into mm-hmm. the hens that lay eggs. And because of that, on the day of their birth, they're thrown alive into grinders and macerated, or they are thrown into um, uh, little gassing chambers, or they're often just discarded alive into trash bags and suffocated inside the bag. Sometimes they're drowned, but the maceration is by far the most common. So a lot of people don't understand that even when you're buying cage-free eggs or organic eggs, and organic doesn't always translate to cage-free. It depends on which... Um, where you're buying. Um, but a lot of people think about, okay, there's a bird in the cage. Maybe that's the one I'm thinking about, but they're not even remembering that there's a male chick who's dying this horrific death on the other side of it. Then we get to chickens used for meat, And I have spent the bulk of my career working on chicken issues. So, um, these are two areas that I've known most, uh, the most well. So with chickens used for meat. These are actually babies. People don't realize that who they're eating are babies, that chickens are, a normal chicken can have a life cycle of about 10 to 12 years. And these chickens are being slaughtered at about six weeks. And so they're very, very young. If you actually see their faces, you can see they have baby faces, but they're bred to grow so extremely fast well beyond a normal growth cycle that their bodies cannot sustain them. They become so heavy that they are um, 
basically uh, toppling over into the floor and what is called the litter underneath them, which is almost never changed in the US. In some countries, they have a little bit um, more stringent laws around changing that litter. But in the US, there have been farms that have had the same litter there for decades. And because it's soaked in waste, it's creating a lot of ammonia. So when the birds are top heavy laying on the floor because their bodies are so heavy because they're meant to, the industry has designed them not to be uh, treated like an animal or a sentient being, but treated like a product, they're getting burns and boils and they're losing their feathers and they're getting a lot of skin conditions as a result of just laying in their own waste. Sometimes they also have eye issues because of the barns being these dark enclosed sheds with no ventilation. They end up having um, burnt eyes because of the um, because of the ammonia in the air, they'll have respiratory issues, they'll have suffer organ failure. Um, and again, none of these birds have the opportunity to have any of their natural behaviors exhibited. They are living in these crowded sheds smashed together um, from the moment they're born to the slaughter. And then when you get to the slaughter, that is even more horrific. They are basically um, grabbed in a, in a way that can be really damaging. Birds are really delicate with their wings and their bones. They're grabbed in a way um, that is pretty damaging to their physical uh, body. Then they are what we call live dumped, just kind of dumped out as if you were to shake chips out of a bag. They're just dumped really, you know, callously and carelessly onto um, a belt. They are, um, workers will then live hang them upside down. They'll um, sometimes stun them, but sometimes miss, slit their throat, and then they're thrown into a scalding, what we call a scalding bath. Although bath sounds, bath is quite a euphemism. This is another thing the industry will do is use euphemisms, but really it's just boiling water. And they'll go, some of them will go, there's actually a statistic that about a million birds will go alive into these boiling water tanks every year. That's um, where their feathers will come off. And then they go on and into the rest of their production cycle. But there's nothing about this um, system that's pretty at all. It's incredibly violent in every way. And as I mentioned, the workers earlier too, the workers uh, suffer a lot in this process too, because they're having to work in very low light because they're trying to keep the birds from being stressed. But of course, there's no way the bird's not going to be stressed in a situation like this. Sometimes the lines sometimes the lines move so fast, they're missing the stunning as well. And so the birds again are going alive through this process when they're supposed to be stunned. Um, or, or having um, their throat slit in a way that is really um, not careful. And that can also be, you know, prolong the pain and suffering of the animal. But the low light is hard for the workers when they're putting the birds on these shackles, they're, they're having repeated injury from banging their hands into metal. So they have to ice their hands every night. The birds are vomiting, they're defecating. It's an incredibly difficult system for the people mm -hmm. as well. Um, then you get to pigs. So pigs have their own challenges, extreme confinement being the main one that we talk about. Again, mother pigs are um, in such tight uh, quarters, we call them gestation crates while they're pregnant uh, for the period that they are um, pregnant. And basically what's happening is they are held in such tight quarters where they cannot even lay down comfortably or turn around. So they are facing one way their whole, whole life. And what's important to note about pigs is how intelligent they are. They're just as intelligent as dogs. In fact, there are studies that show them playing video games. They're incredibly social creatures. So the stress of being in this extreme confinement really, really wears on them. They'll chew on the metal bars. They'll ruin their teeth. They'll end up developing some psychosis. Um, it can be a really traumatic experience. Then there's finally dairy cows. I won't say finally because there's many other animal issues you can cover, but the main other one is cows used for dairy. And those cows are separated from their calves 
basically on the day the calf is born because the milk that was intended for that calf is now being taken by the industry to repurpose for human consumption. So those baby calves never get the opportunity to suckle from their mother. The mothers exhibit a lot of stress when the babies are separated from them. They'll you know, bellow, they'll bang their heads against the um, uh, metal bars of their uh, confined area. Um, they also suffer prolapse uteruses from over, um, overbirthing, just like I discussed in the egg industry. Oftentimes they'll be waist deep up to their knees um, because of the uh, lack of cleaning in the, the facilities. So uh, to me, the hardest thing about cows is just the separation of the mother and the baby and how cruel that process is. But just the living environment is also something to be concerned about. So those are the main issues that we talk about when we're talking about farmed animals. We're talking about chickens used for eggs, chickens used for meat, uh, pigs raised for uh, meat, and then cows used for dairy. Of course, there's many other types of animal products, goats, rabbits, um, calves, that you can go on, fish, you can go on and on about all of them. But those are some of the big, big ones to know about. Thank you so much for detailing it so well. I know a lot of people don't really know about it. Um, I think like, sometimes um, on the internet, people will see like these videos and stuff, and they're like very traumatizing. And then for like a little bit, they'll like, you know, be like, oh, of course, like, I, I should try and stop eating meat or like consuming animal products, et cetera. Um, but then of course, like the whole thing, I think we talked about earlier for meat consumption, like accessibility, like yes. that it's easy to get meat, really easy yeah. and like kind of harder to switch over um, diet wise, which I think we're going to talk about later. Um, and all these different factors are playing into it. I definitely, as you said, it's definitely like a marketing factor. There's definitely like sort of like a psychological factor to it as well. Um, and so I guess that's just something I wanted to add because, yes. uh, of course, not not a lot of people know about it to this detail, but I think that a fair amount of people have, you know, a general knowledge of it. But then because of these different factors that are still standing in, in to them, because surviving and such with work and et cetera, um, it's not really the biggest thing on their mind. Like, definitely a marketing strategy. It definitely has a psychological factor to it. I guess it's yeah. just all I wanted to add. Yeah. Because I can I just make one more point on that because I 100% agree with you on that. And I, I, I'll, what I'll say is this, as much as I want to encourage people to choose mm -hmm. uh, vegan foods as much as possible and vegetarian mm -hmm. foods, if vegan foods are not possible, or ideally just leave animals off their plate whenever they can. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. It can be you do a meatless Monday or you're vegetarian before six, or it could be just ad hoc. You just mm -hmm. every once in a while, just, just, uh, you know, choose a, a plant-based option instead. doesn't even have to be in an organized routine. Um, but I do want to encourage people to as often as possible, um, um, consider a plant-based choice if they can. But that said, it is it would be remiss not to mention the barriers. Mm -hmm. And I do agree that affordability can be, if you're trying to buy um, you know, whole grains and beans, you can usually get those in bulk and they're a bit more affordable. But if you're mm -hmm. trying to buy some of the plant-based um, innovative substitutes, like, you know, plant-based meat or a plant-based cheese, those are absolutely higher prices. Those are mm -hmm. um, a little bit more difficult to pay for. They haven't quite come to the same equivalent cost of um, like a, like a ch vegan cheese is not, is going to probably be a little pricier mm -hmm. than a, a you know, cheese from, cheese from a cow. Mm -hmm. And so it is important to consider that, eating vegan, while it is absolutely something that I encourage, is not always going to be easy for everybody, especially if you are in communities where access is a problem, um, which again, will often be in communities that are black and brown. Um, I also think that there's one thing that 
should be talked about a little more, which is just simply the social aspect, which is aside from just, you know, access and affordability, food is so much more than just nutrition. Food is cultural mm-hmm. and it is, um, it is social and it's, it's familial and it's celebration. And it's so many, it's such a, it's such a huge part of our life in such a meaningful way that some of the challenges that I've seen with people who want to go vegetarian or vegan and are having trouble sticking with it is because they don't necessarily have the people around them that are supporting that change or supporting that, Mm -hmm. um, those, that progress. And so in those cases, you know, community building with other people who are like-minded or who are trying to make the same shift as you, or even just reduce animal products can be really helpful. That connection building to make sure that you have people who relate to you and support you. And then the other thing I will say is you can still have all your celebrations. So actually one of the very first things I did when I went vegan was I had um, a holiday dinner when my family was celebrating the holidays and we had, I was just, I said, you know, mom, I'd like to cook everything um, plant-based this year. I would like Mm -hmm. to have a plant-based holiday dinner and there's so many recipe sites and so many resources online that we just kind of crafted things ourselves and it was because we were doing home cooking you also have the option to make things a little bit more easily and and make the changes yourself because if you cook of course you have more control over over what you're putting in your food Mm -hmm. and that was just a really nice opportunity for us to embrace this new lifestyle I had adopted but for me to still be able to celebrate with my family without losing out on that now not every family is going to be as supportive so that again Mm -hmm. can be a challenge So I just want to acknowledge that um, I would love for it to be easy all around. It's, it's sometimes not, but it's worth the effort if it's possible. Mm -hmm. If you, if you can make those small changes, even once in a while, I think that um, that all adds up and makes a big difference anyway. Mm -hmm, For sure. I think this is also a great uh, time to also, I guess, talk about cuisines, both accessibility and diet wise. So um, of course, as we know, um, I think especially with, of course, Asian cuisine in general is, is more plant-based, not as meat-based as Western diets tend to be. Um, How does the accessibility of cuisines and also ingredients in turn in North America affect um, the market in terms of, of course, the cultural backgrounds of the foods they cook? For example, vegetarians and vegans do often tend to uh, to turn to Asian and African cuisine as a source of like quote-unquote inspiration for meals um, because you know, it is often plant-based, uh, whereas or Western diets are more meat-based. Um, and I guess with this being said, I did also want to just note asking this in terms of both the social aspect and also the knowledge aspect. And so I say social aspect because, of course, people have certain thoughts towards, this is the part where like race comes into it, yeah. um, or ethnicity comes into it, but people have thoughts towards people of color, etc. And, and of course, that would translate to diets. But then at the same time, there is a lack of knowledge of these diets. I think for the most part, those two aspects. Sorry, that was a really long spiel. Yeah, no, no, but it's it's. But you're covering all all such important points. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that you you expressed that. So a couple of things. One, I got really lucky when I so I became vegetarian when I was nine, and then I didn't know very much about the dairy and egg industries at the time. So it took me a long a lot longer to become vegan when I finally learned mm-hmm. more about those industries. So that wasn't until my 20s. But when I did go vegetarian, one thing that was really helpful was the acceptance of my family because, like I said, having your family support you and your and support you in your journey is really, really crucial. But, um, but one of the reasons why they were so accepting is because like you said, lentils were such a big part of our cuisine already. It just culturally, mm-hmm. we were already eating so plant-based that, you know, meat was the add-on. It was never, it was never the core of our food. It was always a part of the plate and never the main on the plate. And so, and actually now my 
parents are both vegetarian, so they followed suit <laughs> eventually. But you are right. And when often when we guide people toward um, choosing plant-based foods, especially in areas where they're traveling, like where there may not be as many options. I live in, um, I live in what's called Los Angeles, the unceded territory of the Tongva and Gabrielino people. But um, we have a lot of availability here because it's a huge city, of course. And it's also um, being vegetarian, vegan is very common here. But in areas where it's less common, we will definitely direct people to say, you know, check out the local Thai restaurant or check out, um, you know, another restaurant where you might be able to, uh, you know, try some or even an Indian restaurant, like you said, you'll get some better options with the more international cuisine because of the emphasis on plants in those areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the, you know, spice options, you can add a lot of flavor and things will taste really good, even if you're um, not used to eating vegetarian vegan. In fact, my cooking got better when I became vegan because I started exploring and using spices and um, ingredients that I had not even mm-hmm. heard of before um, because I was eating such a plain diet in the past. But um, one thing that I wanted to say about the racial component is very unfortunately, racism, just like it is in the rest of the world, is a big problem in our the, the animal advocacy community as well. Um, in the vegan and vegetarian community, you have a lot of white vegans who have good intentions when it comes to animals, but really do not understand um, racial discrimination or racial mm-hmm. injustice and are still resting quite a lot on their white privilege. And the way we'll see this most often show up is when you have... Um, the, the dolphin hunt in Japan, or when you have um, the clubbing of seals in Canada, or when you have um, uh, you know, uh, the dog meat festival in China, things like that is when you'll often see people um, condemning those, um, those situations, saying how abusive and horrible they are to animals without realizing that we are doing the exact same thing at home, that our, our systems in the US are, are not you know, clean and, and nice systems, like the way the animals are raised and treated is, is like I said, it's nothing short of horrific. And so it's really easy, I think, for folks here to um, point the finger at other cultures and communities, um, when really what that's rooted is in is racism, it's rooted in racism completely. And so there's a lack of understanding of, um, of the cultural peace there. And from my perspective, a dog's life is the same as a pig's life. And so they all have value. So to me, an animal, um, any animal who wants to live, who doesn't get to live is a, is a tragedy for me. But at the same time, you have to be mindful that um, ranking animals in one order saying this animal deserves to live like a cat or a dog in our home, but this chicken and pig should die and we should eat them that is actually, um, that to me harkens back to a white supremacist hierarchical model um, of ranking when that ranking is really so arbitrary. Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, and unfortunately, we are reaching the end of our recording oh, yeah. time. Of course. So, um, thank you so much for all of your knowledge, of course, regarding this conversation, this episode. I guess just before we end off, um, where can our audience reach you? Oh, thank you so much for asking. I have a website where people um, can contact me. It's Jaya, J-A-Y-A, Bumitra, that's B-H-U-M-I-T-R-A, 
Com. So just my first and my last name, jayabumathro.com. And uh, you can learn a little bit more about me there. I have a bio, I have a contact form and I um, do coaching. I usually do coaching in the uh, realm of leadership and management um, because one of the things that was really interesting in my career working in the animal protection space was learning a lot about these other issues, particularly um, uh, worker justice and employee well-being as well. And so if you're interested in any of those topics, definitely uh, give me a shout. I'd love to be in contact with you. All right, for sure. And with that, thank you all very much for listening and we will see you next time. Thank you.